1: Coming up on the payoff, we talk about the fact that in sobriety, there are so many ways, especially now, and so many resources out there to stop drinking. Jean McCarthy is one of those resources, and she has a different way to stop drinking, much like all of us, right? You stop drinking first, and then you deal with the rest of the problem, which usually is you. She's just got incredible lessons uh, about her 10 years plus in sobriety, what it was like for her to get sober. She is an extremely, was an extremely high-functioning alcoholic on a big stage. She's from Canada, so it's a cold stage, especially right now. And she uh, was involved in so many things before she got sober, and she talks about that being part of her problem. Uh, A lot of people, I'm sure, listening to this can relate to it. You're going, you're going, you're going, and at some point you realize, not only am I an alcoholic, but I'm addicted to the going. And she talks about finding space for herself and even letting some things go now. She's got a successful podcast going for 10 years now called The Bubble Hour, and she's getting ready to step away from that. But it's, it's a podcast where if you search sobriety in podcasts, it's going to be the first one, two, or three that comes up. So G. McCarthy is a special person. She's a special guest, and she brings to us a different way that people can get sober. But it's a, it's a special way, and talking to her today helped me out. So here's another guy that always helps us out as we get started. I guess let's say Gina's around Calgary, Kevin is further southwest in Hermosa Beach, California. You know who I'm talking about Kevin Souza.
0: Hello, Jean here. Hey, Jean. Hello. It's
1: Pete. How are you?
0: I'm great. How are you, Pete?
1: You're great. You you sound really good. You sound just like you do on your podcast and other stuff. You have, <laughs> you, you have a great voice.
0: Oh, thanks. Well, that's good to hear.
1: Are you and I? Uh, are you? I Al- talk all the time. <laughs> yeah, right. It's encouraging. Me too. Uh, so, are you in Alberta, Canada today?
0: That's right. I am. I'm looking out at a. Very snowy landscape and a big blue sky.
1: I was about to ask you how cold is it there today? I know this time of year, you're basically like people that are listen, listening to this. Uh, you know, Americans that don't have good geographical sense. You guys are almost like, uh, I guess, north of like Montana and Wyoming, kind of. Exactly.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm 90 minutes north of the Montana border, and it's so cold that my little dog ran outside to do her morning business and. She was hopping around uh
1: <laughs> did you have to trying go to keep get her? Her paws out
0: of the snow <laughs> i had to I had to throw on some slippers and run out and rescue her. That's the but worst because uh, we just wanted to we,
1: we want him to go in and, and come back
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's life in Canada <laughs>
1: <laughs> How long did so did you grow up in Canada
0: mhm in fact i I grew up uh in this exact town that I live in still to this day, which is. Unusual, I think. Most people don't stay in one place this long.
1: And what part of Alberta? Are you by like like Edmonton, Calgary? like, like...
0: I'm Cal, south of Calgary. So if you know where Calgary is, I'm just halfway between Calgary and the U.S. border.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so basically, just so you know, to get you comfortable, Mike can hear. He's our producer. Mike, say hi.
0: Hello.
1: <laughs> there he is.
0: Hi, hi, Mike. Sorry, I was a little slow on the button there.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, the guy, the guy would suck on Jeopardy. Uh, and you said your podcast is winding down?
0: Mm-hmm, it is. Season 10 is the final season.
1: Really? So what brought what brought about the, uh, the, the the wind down? 10 years, wow, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, I feel like I just hit a bunch of milestones. 10 years, and we did 4 million downloads, and it just sort of felt like, hmm, I think it's just my gut just told me, you know what? It's really time. It's time to to end on a high note, finish while it's good, and um, and start just go back to kind of you know living my recovery and um, serving in other ways.
1: You know, I've I've read about you, listened to you, uh, and one of the things you say, I feel like I know a lot of a lot of men and women like you, but I, I know a lot of women like you who I feel are still, you know, still maybe you're, you you were very high functioning. Uh, when when you were drinking, it sounds like, and yep. you yep. were you were busy, 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 yeah, and definitely, that, yeah, and you said that was kind of almost a symptom of of the whole yeah. the whole disease, maybe
0: I think so, and i I think it it it's hard to spot, you know, because uh, the world rewards that busyness, and so it's so confusing because you think, well, why like my gut tells me I'm doing everything wrong and the world tells me to keep going because you know, they like this, but I mean, everybody likes the person who's doing too much and giving away (laughs) every little bit of themselves and um, to their own detriment. And um, I think, you know, I had enough um, stability in my life to give me, I guess the, um, what I needed to, to, to stop and to, to, take care of myself the way I needed to. So there's a certain amount of, they call it recovery capital. Are you familiar with that term? No, please. Term? No, tell me. So it's a it's a, something I learned reading uh, the materials from the Recovery Research Institute, which is a fantastic uh, organization. They have a great newsletter and they post all kinds of studies and research into um, various types of um, treatment and recovery and addiction and outcomes. And one thing they talk about is recovery capital. And that is really, you know, what do you have going for you that helps you get out of this? What can you, what can you harness and take forward? And so if you, something like housing security would be considered recovery capital, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're on the street, your, your primary concern really might not be getting sober. It's probably just, Where are you going to sleep tonight? So, I mean, you first look at just the basic needs in life, but then you can kind of move up in terms of, um, you know, do you have emotional support? Do you have any secondary issues or not? So, you know, mental health would be considered an element of recovery capital. Um, Do you have time and space to look after yourself? So just I think there's – when you're talking to someone who's really just struggling to get by – you know their their recovery capital might not be sufficient for them to have early intervention and quit on their own, and that's where it's so great that we have these programs where you can just plug right into them and take advantage of the capital that's there, right? Whether it's 12-step or Smart Recovery or um, you know a, a rehab program, if you're lucky enough to get into that, like that, where those those supports are there for you, and then you can lean on. The recovery capital of the group.
1: How how did you discover you had that recovery capital? And and, because we'll get into your story, uh, because I'm really interested because you're interesting. But how did you tap into that recovery capital, or did you even realize that when you decided to stop, or when you had to stop?
0: No, I. I, You know, I learned. I saw it in retrospect. Everything's so clear in hindsight, (laughs) (laughs) especially. Especially when you're not loaded, but at the time I didn't know. But I just, I kind of was just going on my gut and my instinct, and I think that I, I could feel myself sliding into it. I mean, when you're trying to quit every day and end up drinking more by the end of the day, you know this is getting better and not worse, right? So I think really initially what I what I grabbed onto was was probably fear and shame. And um, not the best tools, but um, for me, they motivated me enough to do, you know, to quit and to get help and to make changes. But I also told myself, this is it. If I can't do it myself this time, I'm going to a meeting. I'm, you know, I'm going to get help. This is it. Like, this is, I'm doing this. come hell or high water. And, um, Because I really, I think what I had was a real realization that this was life or death. I mean, not immediate life or death, the way it is for someone who's in the hospital with liver failure. But it was like, this is what I'm moving towards. Like, this is where this is taking me. I've got to stop or I'm going to get there. And um, now I've forgotten exactly your question. How did I know? I didn't know. I went on instincts, but with, with the promise to myself that if I couldn't do it, the way I was trying to do it, then I would keep adding more until I got it done.
1: You mentioned uh, women in particular, because you you, kind of see, you saw that it was life and death or that it was headed in that direction. And I've heard you say something real interesting. You said women in particular um, are at risk of dying from this when they don't even really realize it. And you talked about, you know, dying through falls and things like that. And that, that was something like, you know, as a guy, I, I don't even, I, I really don't even think about that or I didn't, I'd never had heard that before. And I found it to be really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Our bodies don't metabolize alcohol quite the same. And, um, I think there's a great book by, um, Canadian journalist and David Johnston called Drink and it focuses on how our um, the alcohol industry and culture is affecting women in this era, and how what she calls the pinkification of <laughs> of uh, alcohol marketing uh, has really changed in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, with the whole wine mom culture thing. But I also just think that this is kind of a new phenomenon. We're seeing the outcome of it. You know, I'm I'm 54, so when I was in my really you know formative years in the 1970s of like looking around at the women I admired and wanted to be like, um, you know, it was in that, it was in that era that women can have it all. We can work, we can have kids, we can do all these things. And, um, you know, that was revolutionary at the time, even though now, like, you know, we kind of shrug and we're like, well, yeah, that goes without saying. But um, you know, my mother's generation, they were either nurses or teachers and most of them quit working when they had a family because their new career was, of being a stay-at-home mom, mm. so the the idea that like you know we could we could do all this and like was we just no like we're inventing it as we go. Yeah, <laughs> and, at, and I think at some point you know the alcohol and hall industry looked at these uh, these um, this demographic of women who are doing everything without a real blueprint for how to do it, and maybe saw. I I'd like to think that they weren't completely predatory, you know, maybe they sort of saw like this is an easy market but mm-hmm. but that that marketing to women has you know, sort of It's normal, definitely normalized. evolved. Yeah, yeah. It's normalized the type of drinking and kind of giving it like a sense of humor or an excuse and really glossed over the fact that it's a carcinogen. I mean, we wouldn't tolerate that kind of nonsense with smoking or tanning beds I mean we figured that out but <laughs> somehow with with alcohol you know it's like oh that's so cute you know little t-shirts and onesies that joke about alcohol but secretly it's really it's really hurting women and men but I mean it's it's really doing a lot of damage and um, I'm so glad that we're able to talk about this and and be honest about it and just giving ourselves space to tell the truth through podcasts like yours and like mine just it just shines a light on it, and and kind of just blows these these things out of the water because they don't they really don't stand up when you start talking about them. Um, that that alcohol helps, you know, like like yeah. momming is hard. Alcohol helps. I mean, come on, that's yeah. silly.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's nonsense, especially if you're 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 an alcoholic because you kind of know at some point you know uh, yeah. what what you're doing yeah. is wrong. When did you know? that you were an alcoholic? Like if somebody's out there listening and they're not sure, w- when was the moment where you said, it's the opposite of like an aha moment, I guess. It's like, oh man, one of those moments. When did you discover that?
0: I think, you know, I, I really resisted using that word for myself because I felt like I was confused by it, Pete. Like I, I was so afraid that I didn't qualify. And I think that's the problem of being kind of high-functioning and quitting early in the trajectory. Like, I I could feel that I was addicted. I could feel that. Like, I can't quit, and I'm drinking more. That's addiction. But I was so afraid that if I went to a meeting and said I'm an alcoholic, here's what I'm doing, that someone would say, no, you're 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 not bad enough yet. You know, go drink some more and come back when you're worse. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Now that doesn't happen, as it turns out, in meetings. Yeah. Um, but that was my fear because I, like, I was so afraid. I knew this was it. Like, this was my chance. Something inside of me had broken open and knew. Rather than knowing I'm an alcoholic, I think what I, the voice that I heard on the day that everything changed, was uh, I kind of felt like a slap on my chest, and I, I heard the words in my head. I need to quit drinking, so that was like, it was just, it was an epiphany that I didn't have to wait for a rock bottom, I was was drinking more and more thinking, okay, well, this is how I understood it worked, like, when you're an alcoholic, you hit rock bottom, and then you quit, then you're officially an alcoholic, you know, and then you can join the club, and then you never drink again, and then that's the cure, so thinking that I had to keep drinking until I hit a rock bottom kept me drinking. And when I had this epiphany of like, listen, I don't have to mm-hmm. wait for something to happen. I can just quit. Like the knowledge alone is enough. That was really an eye opener. So then.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's courageous too, because a lot of people I'm sure were like, wait, what are you, what are you doing?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I kept it pretty quiet because I was, hiding it
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and again I was afraid of here's my experience when I tell my friends drunk I need to quit drinking they'd, they'd say you're fine like if you're an alcoholic we're alcoholics and well I didn't want to hurt their feelings so you know I was like okay we're all good let's keep drinking so when I decided I was going to quit I thought I have to stop telling people that I'm quitting because they keep telling me I'm okay so <clears throat> I didn't even tell my husband Who's there Who, by hiding. the way,
1: was your high school sweetheart? Right, you. you yeah. Was your boyfriend <laughs> in the twelfth <12th> grade? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, Ooh, I, you I, did your homework. I did, and that's a great way, by the way, of that just shows how well we hide it. Here's somebody that's been in your life, your partner since you're 18, and yeah, they don't know. And guess what? It's not really on them to know. Uh, a lot of t- A no. lot of times, we're that good.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And. I think some of us are really other focused, you know, that really kind of codependent personality that really relies on other people to reflect our worth back to us. So for me to have an inner knowing was very rare. I kind of only saw myself the way other people saw me. And I really didn't value my own opinion because I thought nothing of myself. So, you know, it didn't so much matter that I knew I was struggling. To me, it was only real if people saw me struggling. And I think that's why it really felt like an epiphany to maybe for the first time to really value my own knowledge and to very, really listen to my gut and think like you know I don't need something to tell me this is bad I can just quit I
1: Yeah if you're it. if you're doing something for a while and you're able to get away with it or whatever or quote unquote, you know air quotes get away with it and nobody else knows that doesn't make it okay
2: um, yeah I, it took me yeah. a long
1: time. I'm still learning that uh you know like right? it's 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 day to day it's hey, like you know a guy a guy on this podcast, just just the one before you and i are are chatting right now, he talked about you know if if it's a secret, <laughs> it's probably the wrong thing and
0: yeah. yeah yeah and 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 yet you just you there's so much shame, like I had so much shame that I was just so fearful, I think, of everything unraveling, you know. And and it it didn't so much – I don't know. I just was so fearful of sort of that imposter syndrome of being called out, out or having, you know, everything I've built kind of come crashing down around me. But when you realize, like, well, this is going to – this is what I'm doing is going to kill me. And before it kills me, it's going to ruin my life. Like, there's no – there's no way this can go forward the way it's going and end well. So something's got to change.
1: You you mentioned and you know, you mentioned the life that you built. You were uh-huh. you know, you 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 were a singer, right? You uh you, you you guys had a business you owned. You were the face of that business. You were on TV all the time. And that is I'm sure there's like a that can be a risky proposition. Those can be a lot of reasons why you don't want to stop because could that harm these? I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for you, but is that a consideration? Like if I do this, this could be tough on things that are very close to me and things that I've built.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think there's so much pressure in that way. And as a business owner, you know that you've got employees whose livelihood depends on the success of your company. And You know, it's a small community, so business owners, everybody kind of knows, you know, like the names of the pharmacy owner and the home builders and the car dealers and stuff. You're like little celebrities in your own little community. And um, so there's sort of that family honor and not wanting to embarrass my kids who were, you know, all teenagers at that time and just so much. Yeah, there's so much pressure. And then also, I think I was very judgmental of other people. And I didn't realize that. I think part of how I felt safe or okay was as long as I'm like a little bit better than somebody else, I'm okay. So as long, I don't like saying that. I'm kind of embarrassed I felt that way, but I'm hoping I can put it in a way that resonates with me that makes sense. Yeah, that's, you know. That makes makes perfect sense. At the time I would have said I had very high standards. Yeah. But what that translated to is, you know, I, I, I feel like I had to be a little bit better than other people because I felt like I was kind of not worthy of anything, so I had to try harder than others. So, if you're hard on yourself, chances are you're judgmental of others. You oh, for been sure, that way, yeah. But that's really what that comes from.
1: No, I'm. And you so know, the, like, it's
0: amazing how when you start when you start healing yourself and accepting yourself, all of a sudden you can sure be a lot nicer to the people around you too.
1: Yeah, uh, kindness is a huge part for for me of of getting sober, like, like a depth to that kindness. Um, And I think that's, that's so important. You talked a little bit about uh, just, just a moment ago about the fact that, you know, when you are kind of being a little, a little better or, or, or or seeing yourself in that light um, and, it's that terminal uniqueness, uh, right. Like that, like, like I'm different. I'm, I still have that issue. You know, I don't know. I used to say uh, jokingly, my mom did a number on me, you know, like tell me how great I was (laughs) as a kid. Uh, but that's not true. You know, it's basically, I mean, sure. Some of that to make up, you know, as a child, but at the same time, it is always that I'm, I'm unique. Uh, and it's that, and and it keeps you, it keeps you out of the solution for a long time. Like I'm different than these people. I'm doing it's, it's a really shitty place to be. And, you know, to be yeah. to be a part of is so much better than to tell yourself or to believe that you're unique because then then you're dealing with the secrets. You know, then you don't yeah. want to share your problems because people won't understand because you're, you know, this person in society or x y or z when really it's just, you know, you you tell somebody what's going on with you, you take the power away from it 100%.
0: Yeah, exactly. And when I think about people I admire, they are people that are really, you know, plain spoken and and honest and uh, uh, untruthful about themselves. And when I see other people do that, I just admire it so much. So I know that it's something I've always wanted for myself. I love the term that I, I heard from AA friends, which is, the egomaniac with the inferiority complex. Uh-huh. That really yeah. resonated with yeah.
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. I want to, So, I want to get into your story a little bit. Was there, a, 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 as you know, an alcoholism in your family?
0: There, yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, there's alcoholism. So, it, this is like, this is really kind of a great part of my story is that my dad uh, got sober when he was in his early 20s before he was married. He was in the Air Force and was a navigator in the 1950s and uh, had a terrible problem with alcohol, and I guess his, his supervisor came to him and said, you know, you can quit flying or you can drink, quit drinking. What's it going to be? And he said it, there was no choice. He, he hands down went to AA and quit drinking because flying was so important to him. So for me growing up, I grew up in a household where uh, my mom maybe had like a sip of sherry at somebody's Christmas party, but my parents didn't really drink. And I remember being maybe five years old and my sister's saying, you know, our dad's an alcoholic. And I was like, no, he isn't. And so I went and asked him like, why, why do my sister say you're an alcoholic? And he says, oh yeah, I, when you're an alcoholic, you have to quit drinking and you can never drink again. So I don't drink because you know, I can't, like I had to quit and I never can again. How did that that affect you? Well, I think it it felt normal at the time, but I think, you know, what he did for me was just really sort of set the example and set um, a, what would you call it? Like a a bar, like just, that was sort of a normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, so I understood that solution all along but i never saw him be dysfunctional
1: was it, so he, he was, was a, happy. he was aa sober
0: yeah well he was he got sober in aa but okay. then we he we lived out in the country and he you know he he didn't stay in the air force he went into farming after he got married so he wasn't active in AA grow, when i was growing up but he never drank again okay i would say he Probably could have benefited from continuing with the program uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> in yeah. terms of emotional growth, yeah, sure uh, but because uh, I think you know definitely there was probably some as with all people, some stuff that oh, give me a give
1: out. me a week away f- from my you know my, my <laughs> support group, right And for me it's it's a twelve step community. Uh, you know, people around me will start to notice a difference,
0: yeah, exactly. So I think there was there was some of that there, but I'm really really grateful for that um example in my life, and yet you know i didn't it, even you would think that would make it e- maybe it did make it easier for me to see it maybe that's why I was able to do something about it early on, but in a way, it also gave me this like idea of what an alcoholic was, and I wasn't it and um I didn't, I had a hard time really qualifying myself for that. Uh So when you asked, when did I see myself as an alcoholic, honestly, it wasn't until I had, was a couple of days without alcohol and I felt the physical withdrawals, that really brought home to me the, the true, true unquestioning reality that I was addicted to alcohol. I was going through a physical detox. I could feel that in my body. It was so hard to not drink. And I think that's when I really realized it What was that, you know, this, this was real.
1: Towards the end, what was it like, you know, a day of drinking for you? Like what would, did it start early? Did it end late? Like how was, how was the routine?
0: So it would begin with me waking up and taking Tylenol for what I thought were normal aches and pains. I was 43 at the time. So really what's a normal ache and pain for a healthy 43-year-old, probably nothing, but mm-hmm. I needed I needed a couple Tylenol to get started. So um, I don't take Tylenol anymore. Now I'm 54. <laughs> I don't need Tylenol to start my day. So uh-huh, I can assume uh, through reasoning that perhaps I was hungover every day, but I didn't see it as that. And I would, I would start every day saying, today's the day. I'm not going to drink today. This is it. I can feel it. I'm done. And I would get dressed and go to work. And then throughout the morning, I literally would just be so excited. This is it. This is my day. I'm going to quit drinking today. And then by noon, I'd be like, well, maybe today's not the day. Because, and then fill in the blank, right? Something good happened and I need to celebrate. Mm -hmm. Something bad happened and I need to commiserate. A friend is coming over and I need to host. Like I would just, there was always a reason where I would start to question if I could really, like, if it was convenient. Yeah, because your life also, was so you know, there was Right? And and also, by that Damn. point in the day, you know, X number of hours since my last drink, you, your body starts to go into withdrawal, and then it starts to look for a way to fix that, which is to have more alcohol. So there's there's kind of that cycle going on. So then I would just you know, grab onto whatever reason I had to give myself a pass that today would not be the day. And then um, then I would start, maybe about 2 in the afternoon, start to really obsess about what alcohol did I have at home. So was there enough at home for me that night? Did I need to stop and get more on the way home? So I'd wrestle with myself, distracted all afternoon by that thought. And then what was starting to happen was that, you know, and when I first started drinking regularly in my thirties, it was a glass of wine before bed, and then it, as the next decade progressed, you know, it became like well, wine with dinner, and then after dinner, and then bed, and so I was kind of by the time I quit getting to the point where I'd sort of you know walk in and pour a drink as soon as I got home from work and pour it in a coffee cup and kind of hide it on the counter and sip while I cooked dinner and then pretend I was opening a bottle of wine with dinner or pretend I was having my first glass during dinner when I'd really been drinking for a while. And, and what was happening was that, that need to go home and have that drink was happening earlier and earlier in the day.
1: You're finding excuses to go and leave, to leave work or to get home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I wasn't drinking at work. I wasn't driving drunk, uh, but because as a business owner, I really had quite a lot of control over my own schedule. I was able to my drinking. What was the business, by the way? Home building. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we built hundreds of homes in our community here in this town that I've grown up in. And um, we've since retired. Uh, the market shifted quite a lot, and we decided that it, it's good to be in business when it's a profitable business, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a lot of stress oh, yeah. when it's when the market's not so good. So okay. we since retired, but and you were like uh, the face. Was, you
1: were the face of this this company.
0: Yeah, yeah. So here's the interesting thing. So I have this gift of gab, right? This radio voice. For and sure. Did some modeling as a as a teenager, so I'm quite composed speaking publicly. Yeah, you got good looks and too. I you grew know, up. Go
1: ahead. Yeah, you can say. It.
0: Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I can hold my own. Yeah. So. What I learned quickly was that there's, there wasn't a lot of women at that time in this industry. And so when I would turn up on behalf of our company, I just always got a little bit more attention. Or I could just, if you can capture someone's attention for an extra three seconds and then hold your own, you know, you can, you can really be heard. So we figured out pretty quickly that it worked well for me to be the face of the company I understood the business I understood the industry I could speak well to it and also it was just kind of um uh, unusual for a woman my age at the time to be you know the the a, a senior manager and a spokesperson about about the building industry so sure we capitalized on that. And in those days, you know, people watched the local news. And so I was very often, in fact, every day when I left the house, I made sure I was camera ready because okay. there was a good chance I'd be on the news that day because we constantly did press releases and, and, you know, offered commentary. And Oh gosh, I forgot about this. I actually had my own little cable channel show for a while there Okay. where, um, <laughs> Nice. Where we would take a camera through houses and, and talk about design and home building and that kind of
1: stuff. Okay, so you know, they got locally. a couple here in Central Texas, Chip and Joanna Gaines. You you sound like you you were you figured it out before they did.
0: Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. I, and people in our community often joke to my husband and I that we're the, the Chip and Joanna of, of Lethbridge. <laughs> I, I, those are big boots to fill, so yeah. my hat's off to them, but... It, it was a, you know, it was a small town version of that, right? Yeah. And
1: it, it's all relative. So. But it's
0: a, you but put a lot of pressure on yourself. Yeah, when for you're sure. In
1: those we'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, okay. and so how does it? How does the drinking play into any of that? Like, you also were also a musical artist. Was Was there drinking that fueled that creativity, or did you feel like there was a need for it there?
0: Well, you know, some musicians party and have fun. I was a solo performing songwriter, so I really couldn't be drunk on stage. I needed all of my faculties. You know, you can't miss a note. You can't miss a chord when it's just you and your guitar and your voice on stage. And uh, so I had a lot of anxiety before I went on stage, but I knew I couldn't drink because I um, needed to perform well. So what happened then was then I would drink after I performed to kind of try to calm my nerves. But um, as my drinking escalated, my anxiety escalated, and what started happening was that I was canceling gigs, I was canceling shows, because it was kind of a side hustle. It was something I was doing for fun, and it had taken off, and I was doing way more than I ever thought I would. And... It just kind of became this runaway train, and I loved and still enjoy writing and singing, but I didn't realize how difficult performing solo was going to be, so I had to get myself out of that, and it was just unmanageable. I mean, that was the whole, that's the word that really is the umbrella term for the end stage alcohol use for me, Pete. It was just unmanageable. I was doing too much. I was trying to fit alcohol in, you know, like literally in my suitcase on business trips when I was going to home builder conventions or speaking at... Because you got to make sure
1: that you're going to have whatever enough is enough. for you.
0: Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. alone in your hotel room, right? Mm-hmm. I couldn't drink in the bar. Didn't want to be seen doing that. I judged other people for that.
1: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the irony, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, from the outside, I don't know what it looked like. Like, maybe if you saw me, you might think I was very uptight, inexplicably busy, um, oddly accomplished, and, you know, um, pleasant, but awfully uptight for someone who seemed to have everything going for her. How were your I relationships? Think that's really probably how it looked. Go
1: ahead. You, you look um, uptight. How were your relationships?
0: That's such a good question. Um, how are my relationships? I think with my marriage, good. That was good. Um, as good as it can be when you're hiding yeah. that you're hurting and struggling. Right. So it was, it was good, but it's better now. Like now it's great. Yeah. Um, it was such a relief when I finally, how did he receive 10 that? Days sober. Oh, you know, I'm so lucky. This cute guy in my grade 12 math class turned out to be a really great, great human. <laughs> I had no idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, you scored. So
0: he trusted me. When I told him, listen, I, I quit drinking 10 days ago, and I think I have to stick with this. I, You know, I, I was addicted. I was hiding it from you. And he listened. Gosh, it makes me almost cry telling you about it now because it's just really, I feel so, Lucky, um, he listened and he believed me and he trusted my judgment. So he never tried to talk me out of it, and he he was quiet for a while, but he never questioned it. And then a couple days later, he came back and we had kind of a closed door meeting at work, and he said, "What does this mean for me? Like, what do you need from me? Do I have? To, are, are, what's the expectation? Do I have to quit drinking? Does this change? Like, what what does this mean?" And I didn't know enough at the time to say, gosh, it would be super helpful if we had an alcohol-free home. Um, I was still in the people-pleasing, I'm okay, everything's all right stage. So I said, you know, nothing has to change. It's just me that has to change. And um, I I wish I'd had known better than to say that at the time, but that's what I was stuck with. I think I was fearful.
1: Yeah, that's, that. where, that's where you were.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I I, I didn't, really, I was doing it on my own, so I didn't really have good guidance. But he still, um, He fortunately he was wiser than me. So what he said that day, early, early on, was he said if you're doing this and you're serious about it, I'm going to hold you to it. So this means that You know, if we're out to dinner, you can't just change your mind. I'm going to hold you to it. And if you decide to stop this, you know, to stop not drinking, then we have to talk about it first. So I think maybe what that tells me, looking back on it, is that he must have been tired of me going back and forth.
2: Mm -hmm. He must
0: have been aware that I kept saying I'm not drinking and then drinking. I mean, he probably didn't even register anymore all the times so I said I was done drinking because uh I would say oh we drink too much let's let's only drink on weekends and he'd be like okay
1: <laughs> yeah okay fine because <laughs> it's not an issue for him right yeah
0: <laughs> exactly and then by Wednesday I'd be trying to get him to drink with me and he'd say oh I thought we were only drinking on weekends and then I'd say oh well no that's dumb we're not doing that
1: and you guys so had, you probably... have three, you have three boys in bed by this time they're all out of the house right Pretty much. Uh, we
0: still had, you know, they were teenagers, but two were away at school, and, okay. and our youngest was still at home. But they were still, you know, very much part of the in and out of our household. And uh, and they they didn't. The older ones really weren't the kind of kids that were that interested in partying and drinking, and still aren't. And um, our youngest was just kind of hitting that age of social experimentation. So. Um, it was, it was good timing for him that I quit drinking when I did because then I was able to really kind of come, come at parenting him from a different point of view. I, I think I was able to be um, stable for them, and so I think that's good, but I feel like I, I wish I could go back and do those years over with a lot more emotional presence than I had. I think I really was kind of lost to myself in a lot of ways, and I think I missed out on being there for them. But kids aren't always aware of that. And um, they they know what they have and they don't really know what they don't have. And sometimes the things we do wrong as parents don't really show up for decades. So, I don't know. You can interview them in a few years and see what
1: they <laughs> say. <laughs> uh, yeah, all perspectives are so interesting as far as the family unit is concerned and the strong relationships you have with other people. Did you find yourself becoming a more authentic person, because I think that's something that's out there for people that they don't realize that because in the world you're talking about, right? Let's, uh, you know, how, how do I look? What, what, what do people on the outside think of me? I have to drink in my hotel room. I can't see them at the, you know, at the bar I'm I'm out there. I'm a successful woman. You know, there's a lot, the, the stakes are pretty high. Um, so yeah. to be authentic might be to move away from that, which is success. Through the eyes of others, which, if you're like me at all, that's super important, right? Um, mm-hmm. When I'm having a, a bad day, how did you find yourself? How did you find your authenticity? I mean, and, and you've talked about it. You know, you didn't you didn't do like AA, and that's what's cool about this podcast. Um, or at least I like to think it doesn't matter how you stop, You stopped, and you're you know, it's promotion by attractive uh, by attraction. You're an attractive person. You put yourself out there you're helping people. Um, so how, how does this happen? How did you find your authenticity?
0: Well, thera- I went to therapy and I didn't take very many sessions, but I, I probably altogether, like maybe six or eight times over the period of a year or two. And then I'd, you know, I'd learn something, I'd go away and work on it for a while and then come back and work on something else. And I think that that, that is the biggest change. The more that I really learned to be safe uh, and grounded in myself um, and just real, uh, the more that it became comfortable to be me. So even though I didn't get sober in AA, I still looked at those 12 steps with a lot of curiosity and thought, okay, why does that help? Why is that important? You know, resentments, why does it help to look at your resentments? What does that have to do with drinking? Um, you know, why does it help to help others? What does that have to do with staying sober? So appreciating that, hey, if this works for p- other people, it has value. How can I make use of that, you know, in what I'm doing? So definitely becoming more authentic was the, was the unexpected payout. I mean, I would have feared being authentic if you'd have told me, Gene, you're going to quit drinking and you're going to be more real that would have sounded really bad to me I would not have taken yeah really because I was so invested totally
1: for me now (laughs) it's like it's like it's all I know but back I I don't even know it was and it wasn't so long ago like from a time perspective I think it was so long ago as a as a person you know I'm still totally flawed but looking back then I mean I was just a complete like mess And you know, masquerading and I don't know what I was telling people on any given day, but it certainly wasn't the truth and it certainly wasn't real. Um today Was it
0: what you thought they um, wanted to hear? Like was it were you just saying what you needed to say to stay safe?
1: It was what made me in my own mind look good. Um, whatever that whatever that was, uh, which was (laughs) ninety nine percent of the time bullshit. But, you know, now it's and you talk about this too, which is something that I'm I, I find so interesting, you know. I'm working, I'm working, right? I'm getting away from the people pleasing, uh, from Uh telling people what they want to hear, you know, telling people what they need to hear. I still, And it's one of those things where if somebody comes to me and asks me for advice, I can tell them, you know, what they need to hear. I have, I guess I've developed enough as a person, but if I see somebody doing something wrong and I'm not their sponsor, right? Or, you know, I'm not related to them. I feel like I don't need to tell them you know, what's going on? Like you mentioned something so interesting about the, like like gossiping, right? Like, you know, when it comes down to your core values, um, like if you're around somebody and, you know, they're saying something, it's very easy to be like, oh, yeah, totally. I, I get you. And then you go to another person and they're sharing something about the person you just talked to and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. And it's like I'm a prisoner to my audience sometimes. Um, I was certainly, totally, yeah. I mean, I was. Yeah. I, I, again, it's another thing where I've gotten better at it, but I still need. I still need to work on that. Um, and uh, that's being authentic. And it feels good when you walk away from a situation like that. When you when you're true. When you're true to yourself and you're kind, um, and, uh-huh. and and you're grounded. How, how did How did you develop? Yeah. How did you develop that skill? Because you, you referred referred yourself as a shapeshifter. Um, once upon yeah. a time, which I think is so interesting.
0: Yeah, I think that that's how I stayed safe was really whoever's in front of me, like who, who do I need to be for you to like me? So like, do I need to be funny? Do I need to talk about that friend who I was just with? Like, you don't like her? Okay, I don't like her, at least as long as I'm talking to you. You know, like you just sort of, you, you, you learn to sort of um, change however you need to change to feel safe with the person you're safe. We are with, and that is, you know, that's one way of defining codependency. I mean, I thought codependency meant like living with an alcoholic or helping someone else be dependent on
1: something. enabling.
0: But the, yeah, enabling. But the the way that the phrase I learned can be applied is that you're dependent on other people for your identity. So when you do that, for me, when I was doing that, I I first of all, like again, valued. Zero value on what I knew. So I might know that I just had the opposite conversation with person X, but now I'm with person Y. And so I'm going to pretend that other thing didn't happen because this person doesn't know that. And I'm going to say what feels good to them. And I would kind of walk away thinking, why did I do that? Like, why? <laughs> Ugh. I yeah. know that wasn't right, but it just, like, why do I do that? And as I learn to value what I know, and learn to really hold my core values as a non-negotiable, then it gave me the strength to trust that I'm going to be okay if this person that I'm talking to right now decides that I'm not for them. I'm still going to be okay. I don't have to sell myself out for that because I've got me, and I value me. And um, that was new. And... Also, another thing that you kind of touched on about being a public personality, I remember saying to my therapist that I felt like I had built this fake version of myself, this suit of armor that the world loved. And that the real me was kind of like, you know how your fingers get all raisiny when you stay in the hot tub too long? Uh-huh. Or that we call it a hot tub. I think you yeah. call it a spa down yeah, there. Hot tub, yeah. <laughs> in the tub. <laughs> yeah. So I felt like I was all like sweaty and shrunken inside this suit of armor and that everyone loved the external version of me. And if they knew that the real me was this sort of diminished withering um, ghost inside the suit, um, that they would be completely disgusted and so I remember saying to her I need you to help me (laughs) I need you to help me kill this version of myself that I built I built this fake version (laughs) of myself and I can't live with her anymore I need help to kill her and to step out and be me and this is what I thought recovery was going to be was like this this um uh this sort of violent death of this (laughs) persona (laughs) And, and she just oh, she had like a physical reaction to that, and she said, no, 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 like, no, no, we're not going to kill anybody, don't, like, let's let go of that idea. And she helped me see that that actually wasn't entirely fake, but that it was an aspect of my personality, my ability to step to the mic and be a spokesperson, my ability to present, um, is actually a gift and a tool. And that it's something I can draw on when I need to. Like right now, talking to you. Or maybe in a negotiation meeting or for a few minutes during a presentation. But I have to understand that it's not all of me. It's a, it's an aspect of me. And that I, I need to learn to use it and then come back to my authentic self. And that... My goal, through Therapy, was to spend more time as my, really my core self, my authentic self. That's okay when I'm not being, you know, the only version of myself that I valued. That's okay that I don't look as nice without makeup. That's okay that I am an introvert most of the time. And um, that that version that I was presenting was kind of an elevated Um, ability to speak to um, a, a point or to do a job, but that I can also then not choose to not always use that. Yeah. And just wrapping my head around that, you know, and being able to turn it off. I don't know if you have any friends that are actors or comedians, but you know how they're exhausting people yeah. that are always on?
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Like, oh. Uh huh. Yes.
0: What they're always doing a bit. And uh-huh. You're like, wait, is this a conversation or is
1: this a bit? <laughs> yeah, we got a guy. <laughs> totally. Uh huh. Yes.
0: <laughs> and it, and when, when, they, when they reveal their, their real self to you, then you're really like, oh, this is good stuff. Like now I, I like this person more. And trusting that I could have that own experience with myself. So for me, that's how it felt to really get more authentic.
1: And you go back to and, the to the. Go ahead.
0: No, it's okay. Ask your question.
1: Okay. Well, I was going to say when you go back to the, uh, um, the thing about talking about other people or you know, person X, person Y, or people pleasing, telling people what they want to hear. I've noticed by practicing what you're talking about uh, in my own way, right? I certainly haven't. Pers- perfected it, but I don't deal, like you said, you're, you're okay with, with this person not, maybe not being okay with you. Like I don't really find myself in situations like that anymore with people that are, that are you, right. I mean, like, you know, you're, you're 10 years in or 11 years in, like you have less conversations with people that are gossiping. You just find yourself moving towards a different crowd. It still happens. And and I can still be the eye of the storm. On the uh, you know on the wrong yeah. day on the wrong day but uh, I and I st- and now more than ever I'm like man I feel like I need to take a shower after I, after I do yeah. that the one thing I wanted to ask you like because you have so many ways to apply certain ideas how do you how do you apply that like if you're in a conversation with someone and they're starting to take it down a different path and this is obviously in sobriety you're on the right side of all this how, how do you how do you snuff that conversation out or how do you, t- you do you just take it in a different direction.
0: Um, I, yeah, I, I, try to catch myself if I'm feeling titillated, you know, that's not usually a good sign. It's like, Ooh, yeah, see more. Um, <sighs> you kind of, my friend calls it her inner growth meter. You know, your inner growth meter goes off and you're like, Oh, I can feel it. Yeah. Um, I, I found that one really good turn of phrase is to say, um, uh, mostly for my own benefit, but it usually helps the person I'm with get on track too. is. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm trying not to gossip. So as I'm, as I'm having this conversation, I'm asking myself, you know, what would I say if that person was here with us right now? You know, so I'm, I'm really trying to think of how I can say this in a way that would feel okay if so-and-so was listening to us talk about this. And I usually find by kind of saying that it's, it's mutually beneficial. Yeah. Because. It's a way to sort of graciously um, put put yourself back on track and and let it be known that this is something that you're trying to correct maybe for your own benefit without making the person that you're talking with feel terrible for bringing it up. You know, because you don't want to, you also don't want to shame other people. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like we, if, if we're doing this right, we bring, we elevate the people we're around and they elevate us. And
1: that's the idea. And that's totally the idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even when people are behaving badly, they're not usually terrible. They're just sort of, we're, we're permitting ourselves to get into a pattern. Yeah. And that, that's what feels best, I guess, if, if we can pull each other out of that.
1: How have you broken then, out of being overly invested in what people think?
0: Well, aging helps. (laughs) Because this, you know, you really can't, you have to learn to make peace with what's happening with the looks and the body and the aging and everything. Um, That helps. Um, I think, I, I really think that's where the mental health stuff comes in. Of like, listen, what do I want for myself? Because being on that pedestal wasn't good for me and um Brene Brown called it hustling for our worthiness you know
2: Mm.
0: and it's it's really empty and I I've won a lot of awards I've had a lot of accomplishments and the moment I got them I dropped them and reached for the next rung I mean there just was no satisfaction in it so that's where gratitude I think really helps and that's a great practice in recovery is just stopping and Really appreciating where you're at right now, that helps you, I think, decide like you know, am I do I want to stay grounded in where I'm at? Am I in a good place? Do I value how I'm doing? And I'm the word safety comes up for me a lot, and I don't know where I ever got the idea that I wasn't safe because I had quite a you know stable, loving childhood, but for me, there was just always this sort of scrambling for position and this need to be okay. And to assure that I was okay, and so sometimes I just have to do that, Pete, and just be like, "Hey, Gene, like you're okay, you're you're good here. This is there's no need. This is a kind of like a there's a part of my brain that is always looking for the tiger, you know? Uh Where's the danger?
1: You you ooze positivity, like it's very (laughs) yeah yeah. You're easy to talk to. Even (laughs) even even emailing with you, like real quick, you're funny. Um, you, you're not like, you know, cause a lot of people that are, what I'm trying to say is people that are in the AA community, some people, not every, it's a very like welcoming environment uh, from what I've found. But like, if you don't go to meetings, oh, well, you know, we, we talked about your dad, right? Like, you know, maybe they're considered like a quote unquote dry drunk. Now you never really got involved with AA, but it's very clear that what you're doing has enabled you to, you know, live life like a loose shirt. Like I like to say, like you're, you're, you're a light person, right? You have light coming through (laughs) you, right? And it seems like you're just kind of floating a little bit. I mean, I'm sure you have your days, right? But how do you, how do you stay that way? What, if somebody doesn't want to go to a meeting, like if somebody doesn't want to get involved, you know, if it's just too much, whatever, you know, how do you continue to stay vigilant and also stay free?
0: Well, um, first, thank you for that compliment. That's just, that's a that's a huge compliment, and um, that's true. that tells me I'm 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 on track um, mm-hmm. because that's really lightness is something I aspired to. I was just way too way too uptight, and that's my my default. So without working at it, I think I the the, the coil springs back. <laughs> you know, I tighten up again. <laughs> I do recommend to people, you know, pick a path and stick with it. So we have a lot of options right now. I, it's amazing uh, the amount of options that we have in recovery because the Internet has blown so much wide open, right? So there's there's different programs. AA was the only program for a long time, and it's a good program. I mean, I, I definitely don't dismiss it, and I can tell you in retrospect that had I gone to AA on the first day, I wouldn't have been turned out. I would have been supported and encouraged. And I do drop in on a local women's meeting once in a while just for the fellowship. And mm-hmm. they're so good to me. They're so kind and welcoming. So pick a path and stick with it. So the first thing you have to do if you want to quit drinking is quit drinking. Like you literally have to you have to stop. And that's the hardest part, really. I mean, physically, getting through the detox and... and Safely, getting physically unhooked from addiction is difficult, but the mental hook is the long-term thing that is hard, and I think I kept playing this game that there was always a reason. I always had an excuse, and when I finally was able to make a change, it was because I made that decision that There is no reason to drink. Like, there's no, I have to stop making this bargain with myself that every day there's a reason or there's an excuse. So that also means that, like, you know, even if you get cancer, even when a parent dies, even if your marriage blows up, like, no matter how hard it is, alcohol's not going to help. No no matter what. Even if there's half a bottle in the fridge. It can be that simple. I mean, how many people say, well, I had to drink. There was half a bottle in the fridge. You know what? If you're treating your body like a garbage can, you might as well pour it down the sink and pour it down your throat. So get rid of the alcohol and stop drinking. And I feel like that seems almost too obvious, but isn't it the hardest part? Is it the biggest piece of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that's, really I ended like, up going, for me, I was, I dug so deep, I needed to go to rehab. I went to a halfway house after that. Like, I just needed, like, that separation, Jean. I, 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 I couldn't yeah. be around it, and that worked for me. I mean, but stopping uh-huh. and staying stopped was the hardest part.
0: Yeah, and then identifying the patterns that got you there, and that's where rehab and residential treatment can be so helpful because it takes you out of the pattern you built that was that was perpetuating the cycle of drinking and gives you a bit of a chance to look at it and say, how do I need to rebuild that life so I can re-enter it and sustain this alcohol-free thing? Like what was it about your life that made it necessary to cope, cope with alcohol, but also cope with anything? Like what can you change so that you don't have to cope with it? Because that sobriety is stopping the behavior, but recovery is, Building your life so you don't have to cope, so that you can actually live your life and enjoy it and be yourself and feel good and not need to constantly escape from how it feels to be you. And that's, that's a big job. That takes time.
1: What are some of the bigger and things that you do to, to maintain that?
0: I, um, I slowed down a lot. And I think it was a lot of internal stuff for me and figuring out that I was really, really hooked into external validation. So that meant I said yes to everything people asked me to do. I took no help in doing it because I didn't want anyone to notice that I was possibly incompetent, so I had to do it all myself so I could hide my flaws. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I, I started to really identify what are the things that are causing me to have that anxiety. So performing was huge performing music. So I stopped performing music and then, but I started writing. So I started blogging and writing books and that feeds my creativity. And it's really very similar to songwriting, except I don't have to stand alone on stage in the spotlight to do it. Yeah. So so it was hard to stop that, but I did, I realized, okay, that's something that's got to go.
1: Did you start blogging on the first Um, day? Yeah. That takes balls. I
0: had no idea that people would read it. Yeah,
1: Right, yeah. So you started blogging on the first day, and that was almost your outlet. Which is, I mean, I wouldn't recommend people just put themselves out there like that. I'd say give yourself a little time. But it worked for you. And that outlet, that outlet does feel good. I mean, that outlet feels good.
0: Yeah. It felt good. And here's why. First of all, I stayed anonymous for the first two years.
1: No way.
0: So I don't recommend. Yeah, no, I didn't help myself until I realized that all of the people I was I was reaching a lot of people but they were not people in my community. I Who mean, are you blogging
1: you as? Know, just like
0: Unpickled. Okay. So, so that was I it. Okay. Set up a, a Gmail account that was like unpickled or pickled no more or something and and just randomly chose this name unpickled because I had heard that phrase like you you know a, a pickle can't become a cucumber again, and I thought, well, I'm not. I'm like, what am I when I come? Like, I'm not pickled anymore. I'm not drunk all the time anymore, but I'm not not that. So anyway, I picked this name unpickled. I blogged as that for a long time, but I started. To, uh, the first thing that happened that really helped, and I wasn't expecting it, was that people commented. And I had no idea how helpful it was going to be. The recovery community is not judgmental. Mm-hmm. They're not exclusionary for the most part. You might get the odd person who's like, what? You only drank X amount a day? Like, But yeah. most of them are, are just, you know, they're just supportive. So I didn't realize how good that was going to feel. So the first few comments just were like water on a cactus. I mean, it felt so good and so helpful. And then the next thing that happened a few days later, which I had no idea because I was so focused on myself, which is so funny now, but somebody commented and said, oh, I'm on day one. And, you know, if you can do 14 days or three days or whatever I was at that point, you know, I can get through today. And I thought, oh my God, like, (laughs) I didn't realize that I thought I was kind of thought I was the last person who was ever going to quit drinking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, when people come right, in and have less so time, your you're like, oh my focus. gosh, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, so for somebody to then say I was helping them, I that was really great because I did not expect that. I thought, are you kidding? I'm such a mess. How can I help anybody? But then I really felt like, well, and now I've now I can't drink. Now I have to keep going. It's the accountability,
1: I'm however helping. you find it.
0: Yeah. So it's kind of a push and pull, right? The people ahead of you pull you forward, and the people behind you propel you from behind, and you kind of get swooped into this really group procession of, of um, I don't know, it's like a togetherness thing. It's a connection, but it's also, hey, we're all moving forward. Like, we're all trying to do better. and we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to. We don't have to um, explain, uh, you know, our brokenness. We can just kind of show up and be where we're at today, and understand that we're all in this together. And just by being, by being in it, that's all. Like that's you just have to show up. And that kind of community is so, so lovely. So if you can tap into that in any capacity by going to a meeting or by joining something online or by commenting on a blog or listening, you know, li- sometimes listening to conversations like this and to your podcast and mine just gives people the courage to know that they'll have a place in that community and that, Oh, this person changed and that it's possible and all of that. You just get swooped into it and it, then yeah. it, helps. It, it br- helps. it really does. And listening
1: to this. The, if you need more people, help,
0: if you, yeah, that's the, like, that's the, it's the big heart fill part of it, the Grinch, you know, where he burst his heart bursts.
1: but
0: the the, the screen at the end, it's really bad. And and, so you
1: said, if you need more help, I don't want, yeah.
0: If you need more help, then reach for more structure. I mean, a lot of people resist 12 step because it feels too structured, but it's like an exoskeleton, you know, your body's all weak and you can't pull yourself up, like strap on this exoskeleton, strap on this program and it'll walk you around until you're strong enough to walk yourself again. And it's like a built-in program. And if you if you're a, if you're a little bit earlier in the trajectory, if you if you feel like gosh, I still have a little bit of control over my addiction, I think I can do this on my own, then maybe you can go more, you know, DIY and pick and choose from different programs the way I did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you if If that doesn't work for you, then just keep reaching for more structure until you get the support you need. I'm a big fan of abstinence-based recovery. I think, you know, harm reduction is essential in some settings where people need to work towards abstinence-based recovery. It's really, it's very complex and everybody's different. But for me, what works for me is to be, Free of drugs and alcohol, you know, recreational drugs and alcohol.
2: Yeah.
0: Um somebody needs medicine that they're working with their doctor to get there, then that's what they need. But that's to me, that's what recovery means. And so I think you kind of have to really pick a lane, pick how you're going to do this, and then really get it done and just don't stop.
1: Were, were drugs don't ever stop. a part of your story?
0: They were not. And I think for me, that was really uh some part of me that knew i would have no control if i went there i really uh was almost fearful of them because um i just i really felt like i, c- I couldn't if i if i had relief <laughs> if i really felt relief from the the amount of anxiety and fear and and um the pain of being me that I would you know I just would never I would never go back to not using them so for me that was some kind of inner guardrail uh you know self-preservation that I had and um and I didn't have to deal with that and it is a tough battle I mean I I I feel for people who are working through that I I I just think it's it's so so hard but it's doable, and um, we just we just have to keep each other going and, and keep believing in this better life and this ability to actually, that we really can do this and be free. That's the thing. Like, if we, if we can be, that is total freedom, I guess, is what we're reaching for. That's why we drink. It's why people use, is to try to be free of, you know, pain and hurt and discomfort. And yet, you know, ironically, the way we we get that freedom is to is to be without it.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. I got like one or two more things for you. One, what's it like for you? I'm sure there's a real outpouring um, of, of women, men asking you questions, thanking you. What is what is that like for you? And, you know, what kind of questions do you get?
0: Um, Well, I would urge anybody who is um, talking about their recovery out loud and putting themselves forward um, as a person who's holding space for others or who's being public in their recovery in any capacity, you really have to keep your ego in check. Um, And you really have to not buy into the idea that it's your... (laughs) super greatness that's making this happen yeah. <laughs> you know so when when somebody oh I felt I, I was getting initially when I first started doing the podcast and put my name out there and and um, was receiving positive feedback i I did sort of say thank you you know oh great you know i I, I could appreciate that I helped someone but what I found was then if somebody relapsed I was so um, just devastated because I took it as a personal rejection or a personal failure or somehow it was on me. And I realized, you know what, I have to, if I'm going to do this, I have to release myself from the outcomes of other people's experience, good or bad. So I really, when someone tells me that my work got them sober, I correct them and say, my work was a tool that you used to do your work and get sober. And I don't take any credit for anybody else's sobriety, because that's not me doing that. I'm, I put a bit of time in, and I'm using my gifts in a way that is helpful and useful, and that helps me stay sober. So I really work to stay on the right side of it. And what that helps me do now is when it feels like the time is right to step down from doing my podcast, I know that what happens immediately is this nosedive in your stats and, you know, people don't know who you are pretty quick and you don't show up in Google searches. And I don't feel an attachment to that. I don't fear disappearing because I just honor this opportunity that I've had to kind of be part of this magical thing that's taking place, this recovery community and this, you know, grand universe unfolding, I feel like I stepped up and I did, I took my part in it. I was offered to be, you know, a cog in the machine and that was great. And now I know I can step back from it and it will carry on without me. And I can just, I can just honor the joy of what I did and the, the, the amazing, experience of having done it and, and let that be it and not tie it to my self-worth. That was a very long winded uh, it, gra- it, it was a great, it was a great answer. It
1: was almost, it was, and it was kind of uh, it served as some good advice for me. I, last thing, first of all, you're awesome. And I, you, you know, the, one of the core things about media today is that the stuff you have produced as far as the podcast, which you say you're going to step away from that is going to live forever. And, you know, where, where can people find that find, you know, because it's all the cool thing about a lot of what we do. Like, I think somebody could go listen to the first podcast I did and it's, it's, it's the same thing. You know, it's evergreen. How can people find your podcast, uh, your books? Talk a little bit about that.
0: Everything that, uh, I'm connected to is linked through my website, JeanMcCarthy.ca.
1: Okay, which we'll put and on here. the Bubble
0: Hour link is there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The, the Bubble Hour is there. Um, the uh, My blog, Unpickled, is there, and I've left that up, words and all. Ten years of me showing my various uncomfortable stages of growth uh, is there, and then there's links to buy the books. Uh, we're recording this um, in early 2022, and I have a new book coming out called Prepare to be Alcohol-Free, And that should be out in early February. Amazon's generally the best, easiest place to get that worldwide. And um, that is a book with um, all kinds of tips on things you can do in the contemplation stage, you know, before you quit drinking to set yourself up for success after you quit drinking. So there can be things that we just don't think about. And there's a lot of books about once you get to the action stage of, making change and what to do when it's time to change. But we don't really think about ways we can really reinforce um, our efforts before we make the change. Ah, so that's amazing. That book, I think would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, that, I don't think there's anything like it out there. So
1: Yeah, that's amazing because I think there's a lot, you know, whatever, you're drunk, so it's not – I don't want to say, like, it's time wasted because it kind of is what it is. But I think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about stopping drinking when they are drinking and if there's a way to – take advantage of that time because we're definitely thinking about it, right. Or they are, uh, that's cool that you're putting out a a tool there for those folks.
0: Thanks. Yeah. I think it, I think it's going to be good. I'm really excited about it. I feel like it's something that would have helped me at the time. So yeah, I'm hoping to just take the lessons I've learned and continue to share them going forward. Um, I'm not an expert, but I've, what I, what I feel like is what I've been is a, kind of an amalgamator, a, a, a hub for storytelling and idea sharing. And so what I'm really trying to do is, is kind of scoop all that together and organize it for people and just be a resource and, and just shine a light. And I, I'm glad to hear you say that you can hear hopefulness and happiness in my voice because I just want that for everyone, and I really believe it's possible.
1: Yeah, today you were once again a resource and a light. So thank you so much for spending time uh, with me, with us, and uh, you know this is this will be up tomorrow. So I'll send you a link to this, and if you ever need anything from me, you just let me know.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and thank you for the work you're doing. It helps me, you know, bring my work to an end knowing that other people are 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 carrying. You know, the the message forward was just so much dedication and and hope and connection. It's a wonderful thing we're part of. So right. thank you for your work.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Gene. We'll talk soon.
0: Okay, thanks for having me.
1: All right, bye bye. Bye bye.